Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. On today's show, we discuss the National Baseball Hall of Fame and the Mets Hall of Fame. Greg Buck Showalter, the Mets manager, said the following. The Mets don't take a backseat to anyone in my mind. The more I've looked at it, there's a storied past here. Sometimes we need a reminder of some of that. Love to make sure the players understand that they that they carry a torch for themselves and the players before them. How great is that quote? That's the way to be if you're the Mets manager. Good for Buck. It seems like there's a confluence of Mets history going on lately. Gil Hodges elected to the Hall of Fame. Keith Hernandez number retired. The Mets out early with the 60th anniversary logo announcement is going to be a old timers day during the upcoming season what do you attribute this to steve cone did not get to be steve cone by not listening to his customers or whatever the hell it is that steve cone does to make all those billions but uh, i think he has been attentive and he heard the uh, the cries of the people last year when they said Bring back Old Timers Day, retire 17, do stuff that we like. You know, we're on our way there. Uh, as we speak, it is reported the Old Timers Day ceremonies will uh, occur in late August. They haven't made an official announcement, but I'd be surprised at this point if it's not going to happen. You know, this is easy stuff to do. Maybe logistically, somebody has to. Uh, make the plane reservations and bring back the players and things like that. But this is all goodwill and it's all a good time as far as Mets fans are concerned. This is something we build off of, something to remind us of who we've been and why we love being this. So, you know, the fact that Buck is aware and brings it up in a press conference and it sounds legitimate. I don't think he's reading from a script. I think, you know, Buck is a romantic about baseball, very practical romantic, given his background, but uh, somebody who enjoys being the manager of a team in a franchise that cares about these things. So between Cone and Showalter and everybody else putting all this together, uh, it's very exciting. It's just a shame that we had to wait this long for all this to happen. The previous ownership came from Brooklyn Roots, as we were so often reminded. It's great to have Brooklyn Roots. I've got Brooklyn Roots, but they, I think, kind of forgot that they were in Queens and had been in Queens at the time City Field opened nearly 50 years. There was such resistance on their part to acknowledging what the Mets were and that they weren't just a footnote to the glorious history of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And let's love the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, the blue and the orange that came together and gave us the Mets and the circumstances that birthed this podcast, National League Town. But how do you open a new ballpark in 2009 without paying attention to the Mets? Because it's the Mets ballpark. So, you know, again, they they made steps along the way. We're in a new era now, and I'm really happy that the new era isn't afraid to acknowledge things that happened before. And you know, that's what we're doing uh, for a 60th anniversary. There were four Mets who were on the Hall of Fame ballot for Cooperstown, and none of them made it. 
four players that wore the blue and orange, and I want to discuss them with you on their Hall of Fame plaque, but they did play for the Mets. So let's briefly discuss them. Will Billy Wagner make the Hall of Fame? He played for the Mets for more than three seasons and was an effective reliever. He would probably go in as an Astro, but he, to me, he's a Hall of Famer. If you put Lee Smith in, you're putting Billy Wagner in, and Lee Smith's in. What do you think? Of the four former Mets who are on the Hall of Fame ballot this year, Wagner came the closest to being in his prime when the Mets had him, at the end of his prime. But he still had a couple of very solid years left. Problem with all Met closers, certainly in the mind's eye, is that they get a lot of saves until you really need them. But, uh, you know, you, that's not a fair judgment because, of course, you needed all the saves. I guess what, what goes against Billy Wagner's case is that the number of innings, even compared to, say, Lee Smith, pretty slight. And the postseason record is pretty horrendous, to be honest with you. And when I think of Billy Wagner at his best, yeah, I do see him in an Astros uniform and I do see him in the ninth inning in the Astrodome. And I see him as unhittable. As a Met, you know, he was one of those acquisitions in 2006 who really put the team over the top and was on the mound every time there was something to clinch, both the division title and I believe each game of the first playoff series against the Dodgers, Willie Randolph brought him in to nail it down. Uh, he was a little less successful, maybe a little more used up by the time the uh, Cardinals series came around. And by 2008, he had had an injury that kept him out for the better part of a year. And it wasn't the same. And he went off and continued his career. It was actually pretty good at the very end. Helped the Braves get to the playoffs in 2010 and blew up in the playoffs as he tends to do. Actually, I think he got hurt. Anyway, uh, no, he won't go in with a Mets cap. He might go in. Uh, I, I would say about him, as I would say about just about any ex-Met I could think of who has a Hall of Fame case, Mazel Tov, Billy Wagner. And what about Gary Sheffield? He received 40% of the votes. Now, obviously, he has PEDs, yet, but he did hit over 500 home runs, and PEDs did not stop David Ortiz from getting into the Hall of Fame. Sheffield? As far as we know. We, as far as we know, yes. You know, yes. Sheffield, PED, black marks are kind of vague compared to some other people. It's the scariest hitter I ever saw, certainly in the conversation. By the time he came to the Mets, he was at the end of the road. He had one year left. I wrote an article years ago about a cohort I called the Never Mets because we were always hearing about how they were going to become Mets. They were always rumored as signing or being traded for. In some cases, it was a done deal, and then somebody pulled out the last minute. Gary Sheffield was that for years. Because of the family connection, he was Dwight Gooden's nephew, even though they're practically the same age, just a few years apart. And it was always talked about, the Mets ought to get Gary Sheffield. They're going to get Gary Sheffield. No, it makes sense getting Gary Sheffield. And finally, he's sitting there unattached at the end of spring training 2009, the first year of City Field. And they sign him at the last minute. And he shows up here. He does something no Met had ever done. He had his 500th home run as a Met. And it was a really nice moment because he felt like part of the family. In fact, Doc, who had been kind of estranged from the organization, started showing up that year. So it, it all felt like a bit of a storybook finish. Uh, the 2009 team 
lost, uh, what, like 92 games, I think. <laughs> so it may not have been the storybook we wanted. And Sheffield, you know, is over 40 at that point and cooled off. Let's also remember um, he, he shares something with Rusty Staub and Ty Cobb and I guess now Alex Rodriguez, a home run before the age of 20 and a home run after the age of 40. And mm. he did that as a Met. So uh, there's, a, there's a, a lot to put Gary Sheffield in the Hall of Fame. You know, again, like you said, over 500 home runs. It was kind of a vagabond in terms of where he played, which it's been suggested might not help his cause because there's no fan base rallying to him because he doesn't really belong to anybody. Just in terms of numbers and in terms of mythic ability, I'd love to see him go in. And no, no chance. There's a, a Mets cap on his plaque. If anything, he's going to be one of those guys who has a blank cap or says just... In, enjoy my head. And then we talk about Jeff Kent, former survivor castaway Jeff Kent, who received 32.7% of, of the votes. This mystifies me because he's 377 home runs and he was a great second baseman. Maybe not the best fielder, but a great hitter. A, a vote against him, a mark against him, is that he blossomed later in his career. We certainly know he didn't blossom as a member of the Mets, as we're, we were reminded every single time he played against them. What do you think about Jeff Kent's chances? Survivor is apropos because Jeff Kent survived a long time in the major leagues. Eh, I just wanted to say that. So we had Jeff Kent early in his career. He was traded for another guy for whom there's all a fame case to be made, probably on a veteran's era ballot soon, David Cohn, and it was not a popular trade. I'll tell you, David Cohn, uh, coming from the Blue Jays, actually gave the Mets a couple of good years. There was a period of about a year where I would have argued in, in my uh, callow early 30s that uh, Ken was probably as, as good a hitting second baseman as we had in the National League. And he did set a record, most home runs by a second baseman in a season for the Mets, which lasted until Edgardo Alfonso. He was not a popular player. He tried to be. He, If you remember, go find some clips on YouTube of the mid-90s Mets. Now and then you'll see a banner out in the old picnic area. It said Kent's Kids. And he's one of those guys who would you know, buy a section and sponsor children's groups and whatever. And it was nice, but never really got along with teammates as far as we could tell. Sort of backsliding by the time they traded him for Carlos Baerga. And yeah, uh, Kent blossomed in San Francisco a couple of stops after the Mets. I think what, what kind of goes against Kent is A, he played in a super home run era where hitting as many home runs as he did may not pop, even though, yeah, he did as a second baseman. And he was never the guy on his team, even though he won an MVP one year, because Barry Bonds was the guy on his team. So Kent kind of got lost in the shuffle. Wasn't a great defensive player, but a fellow named David Ortiz was not a great defensive player. He's in the Hall of Fame this week. You know, Jeff Kent, while, while there isn't a lot of warm feeling surrounding his Met time, uh, has, has that DNA in him. He will not wear the Met cap if he ever goes in, but uh, I wish him well. And when I say before that the player had received... 10% of the votes, that's not stating it accurately. It's being on 10% of the ballots. You got that right. And I spell that W-R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> and then the fourth former Met 
who received more than 5% was Bobby Abreu, a five-tool player. And Bobby Abreu was only on 8.6% of the ballots, so he barely got through. And he only played for the Mets for 78 games, but like Sheffield, he achieved a milestone in the Met uniform by gaining his 400th steal. Terrific player, maybe not a great player, but certainly a very good player. Yeah, Abreu is one of those characters who analytics has elevated that you could watch him on a regular basis. And, you know, we would see him with the Phillies many times a year and he moved on to other teams. And you may not have realized just how effective a player he was. He was on base machine, especially. And that's the sort of thing that was becoming appreciated during his career. When we got him, again, the end of the line. Nice having him around, though. He knew what he was doing. I was at Bobby Abreu's final game, which was the final game of the 2014 season, his only season. Came up, got a base hit. Everybody stood and applauded because we all knew he was retiring. He announced it that weekend. Tipped his cap, left for a pinch runner. You know, one, of, one of those warm feelings, and there, there was really you know, nothing behind it other than we're baseball fans and we know how this works because he's been on Mets, as you said, less than 80 games. I had hoped in the 2014 season that he would sort of develop into a latter-day Ed Cranepool coming off the bench, getting those big hits. I looked up his numbers. He was much better as an everyday player where he was hitting, I think, like 280 that year, not that he had that many starts, versus coming off the bench where his batting average was almost non-existent, which makes sense because he hadn't done it really before. So the Mets you know, got out of him what they could. It should be remembered in that it's who you know. Uh, Terry Collins was his very first manager in Houston in 1996, who was managing in New York in 2014, Terry Collins. So, you know, those guys had a relationship, and we ended up having a relationship with Bobby Abreu, however fleeting it was. If he ever does get momentum, and there's a possibility he will, he's not. He's pretty far from election now, I would assume we'll see a Phillies cap, and we'll go to Cooperstown and boo the Phillies cap, but uh, we will you know, softly applaud uh, our memories of Bobby Abreu. Now we talk about the Mets Hall of Fame, and fans can see the plaques, can look at the greats from Mets history in the team shop, but this wasn't always the case. The original plaques for the Hall of Fame, or the bus, at Shea Stadium were located in the Diamond Club, which was not accessible to everybody. And again, as a clarification for people who know me, when we talk about the Diamond Club, we're talking about the Mets Diamond Club, not Jeff's Diamond Club, which was the soda bar at my bar mitzvah in 1971. So the Mets Hall of Fame has 30 members, but you had an interesting idea at Faith and Fear about a a way of expanding the Hall of Fame to to recognize some of the initial pioneers in Mets history. First of all, I have to go check the mail to see if my invitation to Jeff Heisen's bar mitzvah <laughs> has arrived yet. Uh, it's a little late, I fear, but I'm not going to hold that against you. I would have liked to have visited Jeff's Diamond Club and seen the Hall of Fame busts that were there. Uh, the the Hall of Fame that exists today, you're right in a way. It is carved out of space that was retail. 
when City Field opened in 2009. And it does lead you into the team store if you wind your way through the museum and suddenly they're selling you something. But, you know, they, they tried to make the space as sacred as they willponically could. What I would like to see, if you alluded to, is some representation from the early years of the Mets. When they started the Mets Hall of Fame in 1981, which was something Frank Hashin did. So in addition to building a world champion, uh, he had at least a little foresight to turn back and say, let's get some pride going in this organization, sort of like Buck Showalter is saying these days. They inducted Casey Stengel and Joan Payson, two choices that couldn't have been more apt because they were there at the beginning. And they made the first few classes, for the most part, people who had had something to do with building the franchise. But when they moved on to the players, they sort of skipped over the early 60s, the formative years of the Mets, and went right to the 69 to 73 period. And a whole lot of names that are associated with winning a World Series or a pennant were both. Buddy Harrelson and Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Jerry Grody and Ed Cranepool and Cleon Jones and so on. And of course, we love them and we approve of those choices. It seems that in these spasms of paying attention to the Hall of Fame, the Mets have never thought to give any kind of honor to the guys who started it. And when I say started it, the guys who played for the Mets in 1962 and 63 and before Gil Hodges came along as manager. I think that's an important part of the Mets story. I don't think the Mets are the Mets without those humble beginnings and the guys who occasionally broke through. So what I suggested in the article you mentioned was something I cheekily refer to as the Casey Stengel vestibule. You want to call it the Casey Stengel foyer or foyer, be my guest, the ante room, whatever you want. And I, I'm serious about this, though, uh, whether the however they physically present it. Devote some space and devote some Hall of Fame honor to guys like Ron Hunt who was the first starting Mets all-star, a guy who challenged Pete Rose for the Rookie of the Year and who had this incredible relationship with the fans of his day. And these fans continued to stick with him through these years. I, I wrote a piece about that a few years ago. He came back to City Field and you know, signed autographs, and it was a happening of sorts. Guys like Frank Thomas, who held the Met record for home runs, for 13 years until Dave Kingman came along. He had 34 home runs for a team that lost 120 games. Guys like Jay Hook. Jay Hook's accomplishment was winning the very first game in Mets history. Why is that worthy of honoring? Because they lost nine in a row and they were never going to win until Jay Hook came along. And incidentally, Jay Hook continues to be kind of a voice for the 62 Mets. He's the guy who the Mets go to when they need to interview somebody, when they need to direct a reporter somewhere is, you know, articulate to this day and looks back fondly and tells great Casey Stengel stories, even on himself. So there are those guys, a couple of other guys I mentioned. And, you know, you could certainly look at guys who are no longer with us. I, I would like to honor those who are, quite frankly, among the living so they can enjoy it. They're not getting any younger. We talk so much about Casey Stengel, or as much as we do, and we talk about the original Mets and we kind of laugh about it. But I, I think there's a page missing from the Met history book if the Mets Hall of Fame doesn't at least tip a cap to those guys and 
after 60 years, it's kind of hard to ask them to wait around for the 70th anniversary to do it. So uh, the guys I mentioned, Hunt, Hook, Thomas, as well as Roger Craig and Joe Christopher, all Bachwood still among us. Why not? If you're going to have a, an old timers ceremony this year, why not say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, meet our new Hall of Famers and put up plaques as soon as you walk into the Hall of Fame. There always seems to me to be a sense that the 62 Mets were a source of embarrassment for a long time. They lost 162 games. Do I have that right? Some team had to be first. And the ground for new teams wasn't as paved as easily as it is for teams now. So the Mets did not have a lot of high draft picks from other teams. And again, somebody had to be first, and these are the pioneers. These are the ones who, the first ones in Mets uniforms, only seven years later, they won it all. They deserve some recognition. You know, the, if, if, the, if the Mets Mets didn't have Casey Stengel and the Mets weren't fascinating in their futility, they'd be the Houston Astros. <laughs> I don't mean the Houston Astros who banged on trash cans, but the bland Houston Astros who, I guess, people in Houston cared about them. But uh, it took them about 20 years to put themselves on the map or, or maybe, you know, when Jim Mountain wrote Ball Four and gave them the back end of the book. So, you know, the Mets had books written about them in 1963 because they were just you couldn't take your eyes off them, whether it was for losing or whether it was for maybe once a week not losing. They're made up of individuals and they have stories and there is a link from 1962 to 1969. And yeah, you want to celebrate winning. And I, I don't think the Mets are, we, we talk about all the things the Mets haven't done to honor their history. They've been pretty good about honoring 1969. And they've been pretty good about you know, waving their two world championships. And that's great. But you know, fans are made from a thousand different motivations. And a lot of fans were made in 1962. And in those Polo Grounds days, and when Shea Stadium opened, you open up the Casey Stengel vestibule, you put up a few plaques, you you tell the story, you link it up to, to the next phase in Mets history, and you're a more complete franchise for it. Why isn't Ron Hunt in the Mets Hall of Fame? He was the Mets' first all-star. Yeah, I couldn't tell you why exactly Ron Hunt isn't in the Mets Hall of Fame, other than perhaps it was because he was not part of a winning team. Funny thing is, you go back and read the contemporary literature, every article in which Ron Hunt was mentioned in a national publication, or perhaps in a column locally, said, well, you know one thing, that when the Mets finally do get good, it's going to be because, be because Ron Hunt was playing second base. And as it turned out, Ron Hunt got traded for Tommy Davis, and Tommy Davis got traded for Tommy Agee, so in a way he had a great deal to do with it. I think the Mets were just ready to move on when they started putting in Hall of Famers from the playing ranks. The first time was 86, and they had Buddy Harrelson and the recently retired Rusty Staub were their first two choices. And then when Tom Stever retired, they put him in as soon as possible. He was the next guy. And it went like that. They've often had a hard time sort of pausing their march through history. They didn't put Tommy Agee in until he was dead, which always broke my heart. It was like, oh, we just realized we forgot to put Tommy Agee in the Mets Hall of Fame. And even though we've already put in a few guys from 86, 
we'll we'll step back and do that and then they just kind of forgot about the hall of fame for a bunch of years you know the the uh, most recent hall of fame class i thought was a great sign because it was matt lack from the 70s darling from the 80s alfonso from the 90s and early 2000s and they showed an ability to walk and chew gum at the same time by saying we can look at multiple eras and say hey there are some players who deserve this tribute so i, I hope you know ron hunt especially but you know, i'm sincere about the other guys too but ron hunt especially is somebody who really does stand out from those early years and if you could even if you could just put one guy in from the polo grounds early shea stadium era i would hope it would be ron hunt how about ron swoboda and now you're playing my song uh you know, ron swoboda to me is you know, there are a handful of shall we say er mets you are hyphen mets they just stand for what the mets are about and ron swoboda is one of those guys came up i think he was 20 years old when he uh, f- first made the, the major leagues under casey stengel by the way had all this raw power didn't quite know what he was doing in the outfield and yet he stayed at it the fans the way fans will they both loved him and kind of rolled their eyes at him and he's just such a delightful personality and has been such an important part of keeping that story going and i th- i think when you get to this point in somebody's life, and I think we saw it a little bit with Keith Hernandez, is that's that's part of it. It's not just okay. Here is numbers. Well, you know they're they're a little light in the in the RBI column or something. But Ron Swoboda has just made himself such an important part of the Mets family all these years. Whether it's the fantasy camps, whether it's you know the on-field celebrations that they've managed to have. I know another articulate spokesman for for what we've done here and what we've had just love the guy and oh again i I, here's a line i used in in that column you mentioned you know we're talking about the mets hall of fame we're not talking about the college of cardinals here if you want if you want to be the uh the so-called small hall advocate for cooperstown and say oh dear we might be lowering our standards for harold baines or whatever i'm not going to really argue with you even if I, I don't agree, but the Mets Hall of Fame, who is more Met than Ron Swoboda? So, you know, he did it on the field and he's done it off the field and he's just such a big part of the Mets. I don't understand how he's not already in the Hall of Fame. I agree with you. I met him a few times in conjunction with Fantasy Camp. I went in 2009 and at the Fantasy Camp reunion game at City Field, he was in the dugout for my team. And Swoboda comes up to me and tells me one of the dirtiest jokes I have ever heard in my life. I can't repeat it, but it was just filthy. And part of me is thinking, this is Ron Swoboda telling me this filthy joke. And I'm picturing him making that catch during the World Series. And I'm thrilled that Ron Swoboda has his hand on my shoulder. And I'm laughing all at the same time. Ron Swoboda, definitely a great part of Mets history. As was Felix Mignon. I'm sorry, but did, did you invite Ron Swoboda to your bar mitzvah? No. I, no. <laughs> what livened it up, it sounds like. Not, not, not that the soda wasn't great, but come on, Ron Swoboda. I don't think as a 13-year-old, I would have understood the joke. I barely understood it at that age. Uh, what about Felix Mion? Felix Mion be a great addition to the Mets Hall of Fame for a number of reasons. First off, 
guy was, to my mind, and invoking him, I think, for a uh, third time today, uh, the best second baseman the Mets ever had until Edgardo Alfonso. We're talking about an all-around game. Didn't hit with power, but hit. He hit every day. He played every day. He was the first Met to play all 162 games of a season. The only Met to play every single game of the season. He set the all-time hits record that lasted until Lance Johnson came along more than 20 years later. He turned double plays beautifully with Bud Harrelson. He transformed that infield when he came over in 73. One of the, you know how we love to moan about trades that didn't work out. Here's a trade that really worked out. Gary Gentry and Danny Frisella for Felix Mion and George Stone. And while we love to harp on the fact that George Stone didn't start a game in the World Series, let's relish the fact that Felix Mion started every day. Granted, he had never won the World Series, but he started you know, virtually every day in 73, virtually every day for four or five years. Let us not forget the way Felix Mion choked up on a bat. I don't think that anybody who grew up in the New York area in the 1970s who went to the playground, who played stickball, who played any kind of ball, didn't choke up on the bat at least once and say, hey, I'm Felix <laughs> Mion. And it worked for him. Maybe it would work for some others today, but you don't see it like that. And I'll throw in the fact that he was the first Latino star the Mets had. Big Puerto Rican community in New York. He became a very popular player, remains a very popular figure. Not not just with, you know, grown-up kids from 50 years ago, but you know, he's been an ambassador for the team. He's scouted. He's remained associated. I think he, he's, I don't know if he was there your year, but he's been involved with those fantasy camps. You know, just... Just a great part of, of the story and of, of the landscape of, of what it's meant to be a Met. One of those guys who came here as a star and didn't get worse, which we know how that happens with Mets. So I think he's been a little lost. Uh, you know, again, a big part of a World Series participant team kind of, you know, swept under the rug a little bit. I don't, I don't think by any evil plot or anything, just kind of forgotten about a little bit. But you ask anybody who grew up in that era, and and let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're, when we talk about fans, we talk about kids who stayed with the team for the most part. So you know that's worth something. I'm I'm always looking for reasons to put somebody in the Mets Hall of Fame. I don't think I have to look for too many, but there are a lot for Felix Mion. So, and I'll throw this one in. All due respect to Keith Hernandez, greatest mustache in Mets history. <laughs> How about Jesse Orozco? Yeah, yeah. Now, now we're in uh, the territory of what do you mean he's not in the Hall of Fame? Up to this point, I think what well, we've got six players from the '86 Mets in the Hall of Fame, plus the manager and general manager. And Jesse Orozco is not among them, which is bizarre because I would guess if you were to Google 1986 Mets World Series, certainly World Series Game Seven, the image would be of Jesse Orozco on his knees, arms in the air, glove. Somewhere over Flushing, maybe over Astoria by then. The guy who got the last out of the World Series got so many big last outs for so many years. Was one of the best relievers in the National League for about four seasons. He had one of the most phenomenal stretches I've ever seen to this day from a reliever. Just as the Mets were getting good, an all-star a couple of times. And even if none of that had happened, even if all we could say was he came in and got the third out, 
of the seventh, the ninth inning of the seventh game of the 1986 World Series. That alone, in my mind, would be worth it. But he was one of the best and most consistent relievers again, until he wasn't, because all relievers eventually let you down. I would love to see number 47 in there. Maybe not for Tom Glavin, but definitely for Jesse Orozco. I agree with you there. How about number 50? You know, last summer, when the Mets indeed inducted Ron Darling, I was fortunate enough to get a media credential that night, and that allowed me a chance to chat with Ron Darling for a few minutes. And I asked him, now that you're in, is there anybody you'd like to see in, maybe from your era? And he did not hesitate. He said, Sid Fernandez. People don't realize how good Sid Fernandez was, how important he was to our team. And I think it's funny that when you, if you watch Game 7, when the MLB Network reruns it, sometimes SNY has rerun it, you'll hear Vin Scully immediately refer to Sid Fernandez as the unsung hero of the game. And I'm thinking, how is he already the unsung hero when none of the singing is complete yet? The game is still going on. How do we know we're not going to be talking about Sid Fernandez? But that's sort of become his calling card that that people don't appreciate how important Sid Fernandez is two and two thirds two and a third forgive me if I, I don't have it right he pitched in three separate innings let's put it that way you know turn game seven around well I think we all remember it and appreciate it and that was a starting pitcher coming in to give along with Roger McDowell's five innings in Houston the most important relief stint a Met has ever thrown certainly in the postseason that's Sid Fernandez moonlighting. Sid Fernandez was a huge part of the Met rotation, 86, huge part of the rotation for almost 10 years. One of the most talented pitchers you ever saw. Sometimes a little trouble harnessing it. Had stuff that was just so unlike what anybody else was throwing that it would just completely confound batters when he was really on. And not a bad athlete, by the way. I know he was sort of a, a big man, but you know, he, could, he could hit the ball. He could... I mean, he wasn't really much of a fielder, but we're not putting him in the Hall of Fame for his fielding. We're putting him in because he was El Cid. And, you know, you would face Doc Gooden, you would face Ron Darling, you would face Sid Fernandez. You had a bad series. Before people think we've lost our minds, David Wright's not in the Mets Hall of Fame. Why not? You know, I guess they just want to give him a chance to, to cool out, get his back in better shape before he has to, you know, hold up his plaque because it's probably heavy. As far as we're concerned, I think as far as any Mets fan is concerned, David Wright could call up tomorrow and say, I'd like to be inducted into your Hall of Fame next Thursday. And they would say, sure, what time? I'm not a big fan of the phrase no-brainer because it's always nice to use your brain. But <laughs> as, as close to instinctual as possible as putting David Wright in the Hall of Fame, I think the only reason you, you wait is so you can... A, take care of some people who've waited a lot longer, and B, figure out, do you want to have a David Wright day for his induction into the Hall of Fame and retire his number, or do you want to make it two separate days? Because there's nothing to think about other than to look back and enjoy you know, what this man did as a Met, as the captain, all that stuff that, that we, we know because it wasn't that long ago. You know, Knowing what we know about David Wright, I think he'd be very happy to go in on a on a bill with Sid Fernandez and Jesse Orozco and Ron Hunt. He'd really love to go in with Howard Johnson, probably, because Howard was one of his mentors. So I think he anything where he's not the center of attention would make him happy, because that's the kind of personality he has. But 
let's hope that David Wright has a very long time to enjoy being a Mets Hall of Famer, and you know they'll they'll get around to it eventually. It's just a matter of the form it takes. And let's conclude with people who were not on the field, and we must start with Fred Wilpon. Why is it in the Mets Hall of Fame? You know, Fred Wilpon holds the record for being an owner of the Mets longer than anybody else. And if we're going to talk about longevity, we have to, to give it to Fred Wilpon. Fred Wilpon owned the Mets while they were in the World Series, or owned at least a piece, three separate times. I can't go on and, and say this any longer. Listen, Fred Wilpon, <laughs> Fred Wilpon did what Fred Wilpon thought was right. Let's put it that way. And, um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're moving away from the Fred Wilpon year. And you know what? They want to give Nelson Doubleday a plaque. I love that because Nelson Doubleday really was an important part of turning the Mets around in 1980. And he did have a partner, a limited partner at the time. And if you want to be super generous about it and put something up there for Fred Wilpon, well, I think you'd have to put a guard on it to make sure it wasn't graffitied. You know, live and be well, Fred Wilpon. Let's put it that way. Bobby Valentine should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. I'm not sure why this hasn't happened yet. Bobby Valentine inhabited the role of Mets manager in a way I've never felt anybody has. Maybe not the pinnacle reached the way a couple of other managers did, but man, he loved being the manager of the Mets. It felt, you know, as, as my mother liked to throw the Yiddish around, it felt beshirt when he came back. <laughs> on like it was meant to be. And he lifted that team. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit wherever credit is sold for, for doing this. Uh, you know, the Mets were moribund throughout the 90s, and Bobby Valentine just woke them up, got the most out of players you never would have dreamed would do anything, and somehow got the most out of a combustible bunch of personalities and knew the game so well and worked on Myers. They couldn't stand him, but he got his way a lot. Every night was just fantastic. Bobby Valentine, and he won two playoff spots in a row, which we've seen is not easy to do. Went to a World Series. People love to point this out. Went to a World Series with an outfield that was Timo Perez, Jay Payton, and Benny Agbayani. Come on. Uh, No no disrespect to those guys. I'd, I'd make a case for at least one of them <laughs> to be in the Mets Hall of Fame if, if we were working our way down a list. But, and, you know, then you remember what, what he was like after 9-11 and, and how tirelessly he put himself into helping everybody he could through every mechanism he could. And to, to this day is a part of that story and, you know, the families who, who've gone on. So, there are so many angles to look at Bobby Valentine from, and all of them are Mets Hall of Fame worthy. And I don't know if you know he just rubbed too many people the wrong way somewhere along the way, or he it just never felt like it was a priority. But God, I I wish it was a priority. He should be in the Hall of Fame already. And the Sandwich Hall of Fame for creating the sandwich wrap. Who doesn't love a wrap? <laughs> Well, before we wrap this, and that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022. Music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.